There have been far too many warnings about the grisly nature of our opening vignettes. I wish I weren't necessary and take no pleasure in recording this stuff. But this is our history, and you can't understand how we got to here unless you understand the bad as well as the good side of our nature. Sadly, there's just too much violence in a, quote, civilized culture's history to have to understand. But there's the other side of our history, too, a gentle side, where kind, compassionate, generous people connect with other people of the same ilk. So today, a story from my family's archives. My dear Aunt Violet had moved up to Salem, Oregon, about an hour from where I lived at the time. What a treat for me. She had always lived in a different state than I had. Every now and then I drove down on the weekend, picked her up, and took her to lunch. One beautiful summer weekend, I think it was about 2012, I drove down and took her to lunch. We had an enjoyable lunch, and I was going to take her back to her assisted living apartment. She asked if I could come in for a little bit. She had something she wanted to show me. It was Sunday, and I was thinking of all the things I had to do before I went to work the next day. But this was my Aunt Violet. How could I say no? She pulled out an old book that looked a lot like a photo album. It was quite thick, with probably 50 pages or so. My grandmother had spent her last couple years in my Aunt Violet's house, with my aunt caring for her. She had pared down her possessions from all the household furniture, goods, and knickknacks that we all accumulate throughout life to just a few items she could fit in her room at my Aunt Violet's. This album was one of her precious possessions she kept with her her whole life. But it wasn't a photo album. It was a postcard album. I guess this was the thing back in the day. Before Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Before FaceTime, WhatsApp, and even the telephone. There was the penny postcard. You could buy a postcard for a penny. This included both the price of the card and postage. In 1898, Congress allowed private publishers to issue such cards, and the penny postcard craze was born. People now had a cheap, easy way of communicating with each other anywhere in the continental U.S. People could buy postcards from where they were with a painting, or later, a photograph on them, and write a short note on the back. My grandmother must have had a couple hundred of these postcards from friends she was corresponding with from all over the United States. The notes on these cards to her were often endearing and showed what a strong correspondence she kept with many friends from all over the United States. Young people now often enjoy lively correspondence with their many friends on Instagram or TikTok. We think of this as a 21st century thing. But corresponding with friends from all over was obviously a thing back at the turn of the 20th century. My grandmother would have been a young woman and probably compiled most of her postcard collection between 1910 and the early 1920s, when she was in her late teens and early 20s. I'm glad I took the time to see what my Aunt Violet had to show me that day. It was such a treat to see the portrait of my grandmother as a vibrant young woman as portrayed in those postcards.
Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 40, Learning to Communicate. When I was a school child, I learned the U.S. Postal Service's slogan, Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night shall stay these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Turns out this isn't the official slogan of the Postal Service, though it is inscribed on the New York City's 1914 General Post Office building. The phrase actually is derived from the ancient Greek historian Herodotus's description of the ancient Persian courier service. My point being, intricate systems of long-distance correspondence have been with us since ancient times. The Persians weren't unusual in this respect. The ancient Romans had an even more elaborate postal system known as the Cursus Publicus, which allowed Romans to correspond with those even on the far reaches of their empire. It wasn't easy to establish such a wide-ranging courier system, and its maintenance was very expensive, showing how much the Romans valued communication with those who lived beyond their immediate neighborhood. Even after the fall of Rome in the West, the Cursus Publicus was maintained by Charlemagne and various Frankish kings for some time. But, with a decline in literacy, the Cursus Publicus ultimately fell victim to the entropy of the Dark Ages, as so many things ultimately would. This happened much sooner in England than in France. With the rise of the great monarchies, and what we've termed pre-capitalism in the latter Middle Ages, an international postal service again began to thrive. Such an extensive postal service is expensive and takes place in an established economy. This didn't exist in the early colonies. Yet the drive to communicate and nurture relationships with friends and family who lived far away is strong. People traveling to distant towns would bring letters and, if not delivered in person, they might be left at a popular coffee house or tavern. Perhaps they would be given to a local magistrate or minister to deliver. As colonial America developed a sufficient economy to support a mail system, it's perhaps telling that early America's greatest genius, Benjamin Franklin, was appointed first Philadelphia's postmaster, then deputy postmaster for all British North America. That is, until he was fired for his anti-British writings. In episode 25, I recommended the book Letters from an American Farmer, by Hector St. John de Crevecourt. I think this book does a great job of showing the importance of a lively correspondence to the early American colonists. Of course, this was in the day before TV, cable, Netflix, Hulu, and YouTube. What did people do in the evenings when their workday was done? Books were expensive, but colonists invested in them and read broadly, and wrote letters, a lot. As America evolved, and we went through America's version of the Industrial Revolution, the Gilded Age, the Postal Service became ubiquitous and spread from Barrow, Alaska to Key West, Florida. Then came the penny postcard. As my grandmother's postcard album showed, these were a means to keep in touch with friends and family from all over the U.S., and people embraced the new penny postcard with great alacrity. Of course, the penny postcard craze was nothing compared to the revolution that was ushered in by Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. There's been an ongoing controversy ever since Bell filed for his patent. This was, if not the, 
than at least one of the few most lucrative patents in American history, and Bell's lawyers filed it just about two hours before Elisha Gray filed for his telephone patent, for which the two had been in a race. Bell's telephone used a liquid transmitter that was suspiciously similar to Gray's. There have since been suspicions that Bell bribed a patent examiner named Zenos Well for a copy of Gray's preliminary drawings. From what I've seen, I don't think this is the case, but perhaps we'll never know. At any rate, Bell got the patent in first. Alexander Graham Bell ultimately leveraged this patent into a system of companies, led by the Bell Telephone Company and later by AT&T, that dominated the telephone services industry in North America for a hundred years, from its creation in 1877 until its antitrust breakup in 1983. With the telephone, people could talk to someone across town just by picking up the phone and dialing. They could talk to someone across the country, but this would entail significant long-distance costs. So speaking to a friend or loved one across the country was done, but was still the exception rather than the rule. When a transatlantic cable was first laid in the 1950s, one could speak with someone in Europe. Again, this was very expensive, and international calls were limited to business calls and the rare personal call. Still, local calls for a long time tended to be primarily for practical purposes, arranging get-togethers and the like. I'm just old enough that I can remember calls to rural relatives in the early 1960s who still used a party line. That is a line that's connected to two or more neighbors' houses. If you had a party line and picked up your phone, you might hear your neighbor already talking on the line. My parents' generation certainly used the phone a great deal, but it was still primarily a practical tool. My mom called the beauty shop to schedule her haircut and curl. My dad called his service station to schedule his car to be serviced. My parents would call their friends to organize their bridge game on Saturday night. There were short calls. Then, on Saturday night, they'd get together with all their friends, who would bring over the kids. The drinks would be poured. The cards would be dealt. My dad's famous laugh could be heard a block away. Us kids would have a blast. And my dad would come in and ask us, good-naturedly, if we wouldn't mind keeping it down to a riot. The phone was an amazing time-saving tool that could be used for many things, but socializing? That was still mostly an in-person activity. By the 1970s, a new generation began using the telephone. For us, the phone was a social tool in a way it had never been before. We'd call our friends and just talk for an hour or more. It was free. Our friend lived miles away. Why not? Baby boomers grew up with the phone as their social networking device. We had learned to communicate in a new way, in a way our parents had never done. This was a major change in using technology to communicate, but it was definitely not a revolution. It was perhaps the pre-revolution. But the real pre-revolution came in the 1980s with the mass marketing of early personal computers. Atari, Commodore, and Radio Shack all sold affordable versions of personal computers that people flocked to buy, but sometimes didn't really know what to use them for, except perhaps to play video games on. 
word processors, which in the late 1970s were different than computers, were coming into use. Then, in 1981, the moment we had all been waiting for happened. IBM came out with its personal computer, the IBM 5150. It didn't even have a hard drive. It had two floppy drives. You put one floppy disk that had the program you wanted to use, such as WordStar, into one drive, typed your document, and saved it to the other floppy disk you put in the other drive. It was almost prehistoric by modern computing standards. But then it was truly high-tech, and immediately became the standard for all PCs. I started my law practice in 1985, word processing on my 5150 and was in the vanguard of technology at the time. It was a great advance over having your secretary type up your rough draft on her IBM Selectric typewriter, you correcting it, then having her type a second, final draft. Yet it was a far cry from what we dreamed computers would someday do for us. We just didn't have a great vision of what that would be. In the meantime, on January 1, 1983, the government made its communications protocol that it had used for government and defense computers to talk to each other available to anybody. The Internet was born. We all got computers. There was great excitement and talk about what computers might do, but still, gaming, word processing, and some programs for business were the main uses for our computers back then. Then, in 1991, Tim Berners-Lee wrote the code that would allow us to search all computers attached to the Internet in the connection we now know as the World Wide Web. This sent us to our computers in a way we never had before. Email allowed us to communicate with each other in a new way. In law, this meant that we no longer had to type up a contract, mail it to another lawyer, have that lawyer interlineate changes he or she wanted, mail it back to us, etc., until a final draft could be agreed on and typed up. The 90s saw entrepreneurs begin online businesses like never before. We were sure they would change the world. And it was true. Online businesses and opportunities have significantly changed our world vis-a-vis -vis the pre-1991 World Wide Web world we used to inhabit. New apps and businesses spread everywhere on the web financed by new IPOs. Between 1995 and March 2000, the NASDAQ rose by 400%, fueled by our enthusiastic belief in these new Internet businesses. But every good bubble is destined to pop. So it was with the Internet bubble. Between its peak in 2000 and October 2002, the NASDAQ fell by 78%. Our excitement was well-founded. The World Wide Web would, in fact, change the world. It just wouldn't do it as fast as we thought it would. Thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs flocked to the Internet to try their hand at making their fortunes, and a handful succeeded, a few of them spectacularly. Amazon has a market capitalization of $1.8 trillion. Alphabet, Google's parent company, $1.5 trillion. Facebook, 842 billion, Adobe, 242 billion, and Netflix, 224 billion in market capitalization. In Forbes' list, 
of the 100 most valuable companies. The top five come directly from the world of high-tech. Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. I would agree with most people that, on the whole, the Internet has been a good thing. But what we know is that there are other areas of the web that do pose very significant problems. These are sites that don't end in .com or .org. They are websites you can't get to without going through perhaps three areas of encryption. They are very secure and very hard to find if you don't know exactly how to do it. But on these various websites, collectively termed the dark web, people buy and sell illicit drugs of all kinds, child porn, illegal weapons, and all kinds of illegal contraband. The Internet has not only made it easier for us to talk to our friends and conduct business, but has made it easier to carry on harmful and illegal activity. Then there are the apps that cater to extremists. Fox TV personalities may want to expound on their messages of fear, anger, and alienating their outgroups, then go home and spend quality time with their families and continue to work to change the government into their vision of what an American government should look like through political, legal means. But there's a problem with preaching fear and hate day after day. Those with much higher anxiety temperaments really internalize this stuff. They really get worked up about it. Where are they going to go to talk about their anxieties? That's right. In the last decade, many websites have grown up for them to indulge their anxieties with conspiracy theories, anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic hate speech, and white nationalist rhetoric. But the alt-right extremism isn't the only problem on the web. Overall, somewhere between 40 and 60% of teenagers report having experienced some kind of cyberbullying, and even more report that rumors have been spread about them online. 87% of teens have seen cyberbullying occur. Over half of the students that identify as LGBTQ have experienced cyberbullying. Girls are about 28% more likely to experience electronic bullying than boys. The most common forms that cyberbullying takes are body shaming or making fun of appearance, 61%, intelligence or academic achievement, 25%, race, 17%, sexuality, 15%, and financial status, 15%. We're a social species. What others say and think about us affects us very deeply. This is very true for our teenage years when we're developing our self-concept. If we're told that we're outsiders, not acceptable to the mainstream, and the object of ridicule to those who are socially acceptable, it deeply affects our identity, the identity that we will carry with us into our adult years. Cyberbullying has done, and continues to do, immense harm to the most vulnerable of our youth. Then, there are the ways we use the internet that just hurt ourselves. Online gaming. It generated over $21 billion globally in 2020. It's estimated that there are a billion gamers worldwide. 90% of teens say they play video games. 41% of boys say they spend too much time gaming. There are lots of statistics one might cite about video games. 
but people seem to be all over the board on this issue. Some think kids spend way too much time gaming. Others don't see it as such a problem. Some think they're a waste of time. Others think they can be stimulating. I don't know. I know I spent way too much time watching TV as a kid. Now I wish I hadn't, and I'm thankful for a mother who would finally get tired of me watching TV all day in the summertime and tell me to turn that off, go outside and find something to do. But I'm not sure all my TV watching did any lasting harm. Here's one thing I'm sure of, though. For several years, I had a job which I spent an hour to an hour and a half interviewing my clients. These were generally young families, and they often brought their young children. I could always tell young children who were raised in front of screens and those that weren't. Those that were raised in front of screens had no attention span whatever and constantly needed their parents' attention. I would be trying to conduct the interview with a child who would be constantly interrupting his or her parents. The kids would keep doing this until somewhere between 2 and 15 minutes into the interview the parent would give the child their cell phone with some video on it, and you wouldn't hear a peep out of the child for the rest of the interview. This was contrasted with children who were raised without screens. Those parents gave them a picture book or a coloring book, or, if they were of reading age, a book to read, etc., and their children would easily be able to entertain themselves for the balance of the interview. My advice? I'm not an expert on this, so take this advice for what it's worth. Keep children under four completely away from screens. Limit time significantly between four and six. And once children have learned to read, limit gaming and TV watching to the amount of time they spend reading. So if they spend an hour reading, they can spend an hour in front of a screen. Back to gaming. There are a few who've become addicted to their games. My research seems to indicate that those who've researched deeply into this have decided the percentage of people addicted to gaming is something less than 1%. If it's true that two-thirds of Americans are gamers to some degree or other, it would indicate that a little over 1% of gamers get hooked. Not a huge number, but still over 3 million people. Significant enough for it to have its own diagnosis. Internet Gaming Disorder in the DSM-5, the Manual for Diagnosing Psychological Problems for Psychologists and Therapists. The same can be said of social media. I've known many people who freely admitted to me that they spend too much time on social media, but of those I've known, I don't think it seriously interferes with their life. They just realize they could have been doing something more productive with their time than wasting another few hours on social media. How often does an interest in social media turn into a compulsion that one can't control and seriously affects their life? I've seen statistics from 1 to 17%. To me, that means we just don't know. I'm guessing it's at the lower end of the spectrum, but it's definitely there, and it's a serious disruption for those who've developed this addiction. Then there's gambling. Like many things, this is a fun diversion for many. But, as in so many things on the internet, it has a strong dark side. If you have strong, stable, loving relationships, an active social life, are emotionally healthy, and don't have an addictive personality, 
your chances of developing a gambling addiction are probably pretty low. But if you fit into this category, you probably don't spend a ton of time gambling online. If you're lonely, isolated, and without much or any social support, and perhaps have a bit of an addictive personality to boot, gambling online can put you at very high risk of developing an addiction. According to the North American Foundation for Gambling Addiction, over 850,000 Americans have some kind of gambling issue. When I used to do bankruptcies, I was surprised at how many cases I did for clients who were suffering from this problem. It was notable that every one of these clients was depressed. Bankruptcy is never an easy thing to go through, and depression isn't unusual. But most of my clients were not notably depressed. This wasn't the case with my clients who gambled away everything they had. So, the Internet has changed our world. It's changed the way we do business. And there are even businesses that never existed before on the Internet. It's changed the way we communicate with each other. Although my grandmother proved that extended social networks were a thing, even in the early 20th century, the Internet has helped make those social networks much more ubiquitous and social interaction instantaneous. But it has also been a contributing factor in a lot of disruption, some very severe in a lot of people's lives. I'm the first to admit that the Internet has contributed to a lot of emotional and psychological wreckage and tragedy. But generally speaking, the percentages we've been talking about seem to be fairly low. But then, the capital insurrection of January 6, 2021. The Internet, of course, doesn't get credit for instigating that. That began with the president, who kept insisting over and over since the election that he had actually won, when he had lost the election by the same number of electoral votes that he had called a landslide when he had won the Electoral College four years earlier. By January 6th, Fox News and right-wing talk show hosts had been promoting conspiracy theories that Trump had actually won the election for over a month. Trump himself had paved the way by talking about massive election fraud for long before the election even happened, and of course went into overdrive with this rhetoric after the election results show that he was clearly defeated. The Internet didn't create the great lie that Donald Trump won the election, which led to the January 6th insurrection against our government. What it did was to allow conspiracy theorists and anti-government extremists a forum to organize prior to the insurrection. The Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, QAnon Believers, and other conspiracy theorist groups used the Internet to help them plan and organize for their action on January 6th. So the Internet didn't serve as the seed of January 6th, but it served as the fermentation tank to allow conspiracy theories to foment and for insurrectionists to plan their attack on our nation's capital. As is well known, the Internet has also been used to great effect as a recruiting tool for Islamic fundamentalist groups. So, the Internet is certainly a breeding ground for conspiracy theorists and extremists, both on the right and the left. It sucks an increasing number of its users into vortexes of compulsion and has made it too easy for sexual predators to ruin the lives of vulnerable children. 
But this isn't the internet I see, and isn't the internet most of us know. I'm the product of a different generation. The internet allows me to do research, send emails, send and receive documents for business. By the time I closed my law practice, I had taken a practice that was once a true tree killer for all the paper it used to a nearly paperless office, to now being the host of this podcast. There are many in my generation who use social media frequently, some who use it occasionally, and some who have no great interest in social media. This isn't the form of communication that we grew up with. That isn't the case for millennials and younger generations. They grew up with social media and it feels natural to them. I've heard so many people my age say that the younger generations are forming shallow relationships with their online communication styles. That you just can't get the deep, interpersonal, meaningful communication on social media that you can with intimate person-to-person conversations. While this last part is true, I don't see our younger generations as unable to form deep, meaningful relationships. What I see is my children and their friends, and younger people I know, who love to get together in person and spend time with their friends as much as any generation before them. In my experience, these generations form as deep and meaningful relationship as any generation has. What they have that we didn't have at their age is additional ways to communicate. Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and others that allow them to send ideas, memes, and photos to whole groups of their friends. These online conversations enhance their relationships and supplement their more meaningful in-person get-togethers. They don't replace them. Other than the occasional long-distance call to a brother or sister who lived out of state, I can't remember my parents ever having a long conversation with a friend on the phone. When my generation learned to have long conversations with our friends on the phone, we learned to use technology that was available to us to communicate in a different way that enhanced our relationships. This is what our younger generations have done, only much more so with the social media that's available on the internet. I guess I'd say it's just a tool for us to use. And the content that ultimately gets posted there is not the internet's fault. It's a reflection of who we are. But it's more than that. It's an amplifier, providing receptive audiences to voices who are saying things that these audiences want to hear. If someone were to post a brilliant video on how to correctly do a three-level study of New Testament passages showing how to analyze the passage concretely, allegorically, and how to relate it to Old Testament passages, he or she would likely get very few likes, as no one has cared about this kind of biblical exegesis since the Middle Ages. On the other hand, getting ready for this episode, I opened a YouTube Best Of page of TikTok compilations 
It was about 20 minutes. I was behind in my preparation. I was going to watch two or three of them just to get a flavor, as I hadn't spent much time on TikTok before. Yeah, I watched the whole 20 minutes. They were cute, creative, and entertaining. So the content of the internet is a reflection of who we are. From the vilest depths of child porn on the dark web to the behemoth TikTok site dedicated to fun, entertaining short videos to all the entertaining and how-to posts on YouTube or a post on Instagram and the myriad other engaging social connections we make on social media sites and all of the websites in between, the web reflects who we are. If you could somehow take a snapshot of the entire web and comprehend it, it would be a pretty good reflection of all the good, the bad, and all the interests of humanity today. Yeah, if you looked at such a snapshot today, you'd see the viler side of our human community today. You'd see most of the commerce we engage in today. You'd see the few percent of humanity that develops various web-related obsessions. Perhaps you could discern all of the FOMO of our younger social media users, or all the distress that's going on right now about how everyone's life seems to be so much more interesting than our own. You'd see a lot of anger, mostly on the right, but definitely on the left as well. Sadly, you'd see gullible people following fake news and conspiracy theories who've become caught up in their obsessions with sex, gambling, gaming, or whatever, but I think your biggest takeaway would be how much time humans spend connecting with each other, posting photos on Instagram, posting entertaining videos on TikTok, messaging on WhatsApp, or connecting in dozens of other ways. Our younger generations have found the internet can help them connect and stay connected with a large network of friends in ways that were never available before. Yet how we communicate helps to define who we are. While the overwhelming amount of communication is friendly, supportive, creative, uplifting, caring, and fun, there is still far too much of it that's not, as outlined above. Why do we talk to and about each other in angry, fearful, bullying, and other hurtful ways? The simple answer is because we have angry, fearful, bullying, and other dysfunctional sides of our natures. These sides exist alongside our friendly, supportive, creative, uplifting, caring, and fun sides. What draws one side out as opposed to another? Since 1980, more and more extreme messages have been directed at both conservatives and liberals. But a more concerted effort has been made to radicalize conservatives. The populist voices on the right have become ever more radical. You can see the progression. Reagan, Limbaugh, Bush Jr. with his advisors Cheney and Rumsfeld, Ann Coulter, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, to the websites and organizations radicalizing the far right today. The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and the jaw-droppingly bizarre QAnon, with its conspiracy theories of Satan-worshipping pedophiles that rule the world. At least one poll found that a stunning 17% of Americans believed QAnon's unusual theories. And then finally, to Trump. 
How does a nation the size of the U.S. become so radicalized that such a huge number of us could believe that the world is led by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles and that Trump can be our only savior, and then ultimately to an insurgency in which people who view themselves as patriots take over our nation's capital in a violent insurrection designed at preventing the peaceful transfer of power in an election. Despite massive efforts to do so, there is no proof whatsoever that there is the kind of massive vote fraud necessary to invalidate our last presidential election. Only conspiracy theories. But such conspiracy theories abounded and were all that were necessary to incite the insurrection. How could we have come to this point? One thing that history has proven is that there seems to be no belief so outlandish that the human mind is incapable of believing it given the right circumstances. When enough people gather to believe such outlandish creeds, a movement is born. When sufficient masses of people come to hold such beliefs, the emergence that inevitably arise out of such a movement is an insurgency or rebellion aimed at the overthrow of the current political order. These circumstances include a decrease in the economic status of a major portion of the dynasty's subjects, an increasing lack of hope that individuals will be able to regain their former economic status, and the rise of some kind of messiah or cult figure. This kind of end-dynasty rebellion is seen repeatedly throughout history. We saw them in the Red Eyebrow Movement in China in episode 21. Such an end-dynasty rebellion reappeared in China in the Boxer Rebellion at the turn of the 20th century. Or, if you prefer, you can look to the Nazis and the fall of the Weimar Republic in Germany. Such historical emergences are far too complex for us to investigate here. But one thing that's necessary is that potential followers of such movement be allowed to communicate to one another in relative isolation from mainstream thought. And so, with all the good that's come from the internet, there has also come a cohort of increasingly hopeless Americans. These are Americans who were once middle class or were raised by middle class parents. They've been squeezed by an economy that has funneled less and less money to the middle class as it continually channels more and more to the super rich. These Americans not only listen to ever more radical voices on talk radio and Fox News and websites such as Breitbart News, but, critically, engage over the internet in ever more radical discussions with other radicalized Americans who feel as though the American dream has left them behind as well. We're getting closer and closer to the end of our story. Remember, we've taken humanity to the edge of a very dangerous cliff. Call it the climate cliff. On the other side of the cliff are dire consequences that scientists have warned us about at overall global warming of 1.5 degrees centigrade. We've already warmed our atmosphere by 1 degree centigrade. We got here by engaging the dark and dysfunctional sides of our nature. We're not going to back away from the cliff by nurturing these same sides of our nature, by communicating with each other, 
in angry, fearful, bullying, and other dysfunctional ways. This is not the last time you'll hear me say this. Stop watching Fox News. Turn off Rachel Maddow. Don't listen to those who scare and anger you. And definitely, don't use your voice to scare and anger others. This has been well studied. We understand well why people have accepted the radical beliefs that far too many hold today. People radicalize when they hear radical points of view over and over again, especially by those who care about them. Stop fearing those in your life who have extreme points of view. Stop thinking about those on the other side of the political divide as your outgroup. Then, it will no longer be a political divide. We'll just all occupy different nodes on the political spectrum. There's a lot of buzz about how uncivil our discourse is these days. But the problem is not our discourse. It's who we are. The way we communicate with each other is just a reflection of who we are. If we're angry people, we speak in anger. If we're hateful, we speak in hate. If fearful, we talk about how we fear our outgroups. We're all good, and we're all bad. We all fear and are brave, are confident and anxious in differing degrees. But remember, your mind is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it will be. The more you engage in angry discourse with those in your in-group, about those you see as your out-group, the angrier a person you will be. Just ask those who broke through police lines, injuring and even killing police, smashing the windows of our capital, pouring in and attempting to prevent the peaceful transfer of power to a lawfully elected president of our United States on January 6, 2021. They didn't start out that radicalized. They were radicalized by years of listening to Fox News rants, Rush Limbaugh, and other conservative voices, and, critically, by talking with others in their inner circles, in their in-groups, vilifying those who didn't think and believe as they did. I'm using the January 6th insurrectionists as an example here, as they are the most obvious and egregious example. But I could just as easily be using the protesters radicalized on the left, who did millions of dollars of damage to the buildings in downtown Portland in 2020, shutting down much of the downtown section of the city for many weeks. Stop it. We need to change who we are in order to change our discourse. We need to lower our anger, hate less, stop fearing, and start caring more. Too many of us have lost contact with friends and family members on the other side of the political divide. It happens because there's too much anger associated with our political beliefs these days. Rush Limbaugh, Tucker Carlson, and Rachel Maddow have taught us that it's right to be angry at those who don't believe as we do. Stop listening to them. Stop exercising the anger muscle in your brain. Start reconnecting with those in your life who have different beliefs than you do. Listen to them. Show them that you can disagree respectfully, but you still care about them. And definitely use your space on social media to spread your gospel of acceptance and respectful disagreement with those whom you differ. 
It's when we begin to stop fearing and hating those with whom we disagree that we'll be able to begin to make the serious changes that are necessary to prevent us from going over the climate cliff. Your read this week is No Future Without Forgiveness by Desmond Tutu. 21st century America is not the only country to have experienced severe in-group, out-group divides. After apartheid ended and South Africa adopted a constitution that allowed for black majority rule in 1994, Nelson Mandela was elected president. He was not the only amazing man that helped to heal the wounds that a century of prejudice and severe oppression had caused. Archbishop Desmond Tutu was a major part of the process of reconciliation in South Africa at the time. He describes the process that brought peace to South Africa in this book. Americans are not our enemy. We need to stop vilifying Americans and begin coming together. I highly recommend this week's read. Enjoy. See you next week.